Well, we, we once did some interesting maths on um, in Australia, the weight gain over a decade and what that meant in excess kilojoules and how many people um, that could feed. And it turned out to be several million people for a year. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Two-thirds of Australian adults and a quarter of children are overweight or obese. Half of us don't do enough exercise. Nine in ten of us don't eat enough vegetables. Diabetes and cardiovascular disease are on the rise. In 2005, the CSIRO published the Total Wellbeing Diet, what they said was a scientifically proven diet for Australians. Their diet book has since sold more than a million copies, knocking Harry Potter off the bestseller list and winning a World Food Media Award. But the diet was not without its knockers, including a critical editorial in the journal Nature. Still, it's fair to say that it's Australia's most popular diet today. The principal author behind the Total Wellbeing Diet was Dr Manny Noakes, Senior Principal Research Scientist in the CSIRO's Nutrition and Health Program. With 200 papers to her name and an H-index of 44, just trust me, that's impressive, Manny has three CSIRO medals and serves on numerous expert government committees. We're here to talk about eating well, a critical aspect of a good life. Manny, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure. What was your relationship with food as a child? Very passionate, I have to say. In fact, perhaps too passionate. Um, I was somewhat of a chubby child. In fact, um, by the time I was 11, I do recall weighing 11 stone. So I think I probably used food for comfort uh, quite a bit. Um, but also coming from a Mediterranean background, Italian, food was really quite central to um, my life uh, and still remains so. When did that change? Uh, it hasn't changed. Food is still central to my life. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, but, but you're, you're, you're uh, very svelte now. So yes, I... certainly. So, well, I wouldn't say svelte, but um, I, look, I think I always had an interest in, um, in, in food and, and health as I grew older. Um, and probably my teenage years, I was much more concerned about body image issues. And, uh, uh, and probably in my early 20s, um, started to seriously um, tackle uh, weight. Uh, and I do recall back then, um, and I can mention it on air, but um, the, the, the old Weight Watchers program was one that I thought was an excellent program and one that is actually not so, so different to the total wellbeing diet as it was mm. then. Uh, it was a high protein eating plan. It was quite nutritionally balanced. Uh, it was very prescriptive, so you knew exactly what you were doing. Um, and there are a lot of elements of that that really helped me to um, uh, really cope with eating less and eating better at the same time. Uh, and so that really was um, an important, um, an important um, 
turning point uh, for me, but also it meant that uh, I became very interested in nutrition and health. Uh, I did a Bachelor of Science at Adelaide Uni um, and I then went on to do um, a nutrition and dietetics um, a, a few years later. So was it your own relationship with food that drew you into research or was it something about the, the scientific exploration that most attracted you? I think it was both. I always really enjoyed biology at school um, and understanding how things work in the body. Um, and so I think it was a combination of both the culinary aspects and the scientific aspects. And sometimes people say, oh, look, doesn't it take away the enjoyment of food um, looking at it from a nutrition lens? And I would say exactly not, because it just gives you another dimension um, from which you can enjoy food, not only from the culinary dimension, but also from that nutritional dimension as well. So let's talk about your most famous diet. Uh, I've got a little sort of simple rundown as to as to what a uh, a day on the total well-being diet might uh, might be like. 40 grams of high fiber cereal, 250 mils of low fat milk, two slices of whole grain bread, two pieces of fruit. Uh, for lunch, 100 grams of lean chicken, fish or eggs. Uh, for dinner, 200 grams of lean beef or lamb. Two and a half cups of vegetables, 200 grams of low-fat yogurt, three teaspoons of rapeseed oil, and each week, two glasses of wine. Uh, that makes it a high-protein, moderate-carb, low-fat kind of diet. So I wonder if you could talk us through each of those aspects of, uh, of, of, the, uh, of the diet, um, starting with protein. What, what, uh, what role does protein play in healthy eating? Yeah, first of all, I'd like to say that the total wellbeing diet is really based around whole foods because that's how we eat food and food is more than just the macronutrients that it contains. However, what we do know from both our research and international um, literature is that protein is uh, a component that really has not just an impact on body composition and muscle mass, but also has really important effects on appetite regulation. And um, you might say, well, a lot of people eat when they're not hungry, and that's true. But if you're trying to lose weight, you will get hungry. And therefore, having enough protein uh, is really important to um, be able to cope with saying no uh, at times when it can be a little bit more challenging. Do you have a favourite source of protein yourself? Um, look, I, I like all protein sources. I like dairy protein sources. Ricotta is one of my favourite foods. Um, you know, but I, I like meat. I like chicken. Uh, I like fish. Um, it's really how they're prepared and what they're prepared with that really makes the difference. And there's been a, a lot of focus recently, and I know CSIRO has done some work on this, on the environmental impact uh, of, uh, of, of eating a lot of animal protein. Um, are you encouraging people increasingly to look at eggs or, or at uh, fish rather, rather than, what is it, uh, uh, fur, uh, feathers and fins rather, <laughs> rather than fur? Uh, look, I think that's a really complex question. At the moment, we've just published a very um, comprehensive review on diet and the environment and the literature around that. A lot of the literature is based around greenhouse gases, which is only one dimension mm. of environmental impact. It's not the only dimension, important though it is. Um, and when we've looked at the um, environmental impact of different dietary patterns, what we see is perhaps the two most critical elements 
of what we could do to help the environment is to uh, avoid food waste. And food waste is twofold. One, over-consuming food is food waste. And then the food that we actually throw away is also food waste. And both of those things are a major contributor to environmental impact. Um, and we can focus a lot on trying to shift um, the dial um, from one thing to another. But if we're trying to achieve better health um, as well as um, environmental um, impact changes, then we need to look at the bigger picture. And basically eating less and eating a healthier diet will actually help to lower um, the impact from the food that we eat. And um, we believe that that's a much more palatable message for people. They'll understand that more than trying to work out, um, you know, how many food miles, which may or may not have anything to do with environmental impact um, or avoiding certain foods, etc. Um, so not wasting food is critically important, um, both at the level of the consumer, but also post farm gate as well. And eating just enough to meet your needs and enjoying that food. So it's all about quality of food, not quantity. And I think that part of our obesity challenge is really the fact that we have focused a lot on upsizing and quantity. I think that is shifting. I think we see some really good signals that people are focusing much more on smaller amounts, mm. smaller portion sizes, and that's starting to become more popular and more mainstream. And that's, that's a really, really good um, direction for things to be going. Yes, I lived in the United States for four years and I remember travelling through Texas sometimes being struck by the fact that one regular meal uh, seemed like it would contain enough food for an entire family to uh, eat for dinner in many parts of the world. Well, we, we once did some interesting maths on um, in Australia, the weight gain over a decade and what that meant in excess kilojoules and how many people... Um, that could feed and it turned out to be several million people for a year um, so in other words that the excess that we consume um, although can't directly go towards feeding people but um, you know we hear a lot about population growth and we've got to grow more food mm. I think we probably need to look at how we can make that food go further. That's a nice way of putting it. Uh, so then looking at carbohydrates, uh, many of my friends will say when they need to lose weight, the simplest rule of thumb is cut out carbs. Uh, Atkins and Paleo are essentially designed around this idea of, uh, of, of just, just lose the carbs. But the total wellbeing diet has moderate carbohydrates in it. Why is that? Uh, well, carbohydrate foods are really important for gut health. Um, you know, we, we now understand that the gut um, has a microbiome that we need to feed and carbohydrates that are less well digested um, will help to um, increase the number of healthy bacteria in the gut. Um, so it's very, very good for digestion. Um, but also carbohydrate foods ca contain certain nutrients like thiamine um, and other components. Um, that said, I mean, CSIRO and, and I also and my colleagues um, have been involved in um, studying low-carbohydrate diets. That's one of my areas of interest from way back. And, and, and my, um, my good colleague, um, Dr Grant Brinkworth, has launched a, a, a low-carb diet into uh, the marketplace. And this is a particular low-carb diet that's very well-balanced. 
Um, and so it is possible to have a healthy diet that's lower in carbohydrate, provided you choose that carbohydrate carefully. It mm. generally needs to be um, low in glycemic response um, and also high in whole grains. So once again, quality carbohydrates are important. It's not no carbohydrate. Um, but we've tended to um, think th in our fat phobic phase that carbohydrates are all great and, and, and are innocuous and that's absolutely not the case. Uh, and so we now understand that you know healthy fats are fine um, um, but excessive amounts of refined carbohydrate, be it in the form of sugar, which is one form of refined carbohydrate, or be it in the form of um, unrefined or, or, or I should say refined white bread and biscuits and cakes mm. uh, are just as damaging as um, a, what we thought um, animal fats were in the past. Mm. And as you say, before lo the low-carb fad came the low-fat low fad, uh, you've got the total well-being diet doesn't ban fats, but it does suggest uh, minimising fat intake. Uh, why is that? It's not so much minimising it, it's just that you've got to keep the kilojoules under control. And so if you have a lot more protein, uh, you've got some carbohydrate foods, not only from grains, but also from fruit. Um, you then have to balance the kilojoules and um, there will be fats coming from those protein foods. Um, and there's a, a minimum of three teaspoons a day of fats and oils. Mm. Um, but that depends on uh, and what we've done with our total wellbeing diet online is people can personalise that a little bit more. So if you're a bigger person, you're going to you can lose weight on more kilojoules, and that means that you'll be able to have a little bit more um, fat. Mm. So we shouldn't avoid fat completely. Some people use spray oils and are completely just into the no fat phase, have totally skim milk. Uh, I don't think that's necessary. Um, and there are important attributes of higher fat foods, for example, uh, low fat milk rather than non-fat milk as vitamin A, whereas the non-fat doesn't. Um, and so once again, it's about healthy fats and uh, reiterating the point that if we just focus on the macronutrients, we'll end up creating eating patterns that are really not always that healthy. Uh, and we throw the baby out with the bathwater. So again, getting back to the total wellbeing diet and even the, the low-carb diet, it's really based around whole foods, mm. getting that balance right. Um, and that's something that I, I think we need to do more of in terms of promoting what good nutrition is about. It's not just about looking at labels. If you're spending your life looking at labels, then that's a problem because most of the time the foods in your shopping basket don't need to be worrying too much about that. If you've got a lot of vegetables, uh, fruit, um, you know, fresh um, lean protein foods, um, the labels are kind of the secondary aspect. Um, you know, you might want to choose the bread with the most amount of fibre or the lowest amount of salt. But if that's the only thing you look at, you lose sight of the bigger picture. That yes. It's that dietary balance that's really important. Um, and that's why we've gone further with our work looking at how can people assess whether they're eating well or not. Mm, mm. And so we, we have an online survey called the, um, the CSIRO Diet Score, uh, which takes about 10 to 15 minutes to do. And it asks you, doesn't ask you questions about um, sodium or protein or carbohydrate. It asks you questions about 
what you ate yesterday or how much fruit do you eat each day and when you eat milk uh, or drink milk, you know, how much do you have? Um, it, those are the questions that we need to ask in terms of assessing whether that diet is balanced and you'll get a score out of 100 and on average Australians score a C, which is not that great. Um, and so there's lots of room for improvement, no matter whether someone is overweight, obese or normal weight or underweight, the entire population um, could do with eating a healthier diet. And I think, again, I think that there is there are some positive shifts in that direction, even in the younger population, albeit in an unusually quirky kind of way, um, with turmeric lattes and, um, you know, kale smoothies and all those sorts of things. But it, it, it really signals a sense of really starting to prioritise nutrition and whole foods a lot more. And so um, we might even complain about the paleo diet, but if you look at people eating the paleo diet, they're probably having a better diet than the average Australian diet. Mm. So sometimes we have to be a bit pragmatic about things and not always um, downplay everything um, because um, you know healthier eating can come in many forms they're not all perfect um, but we have to accept that um, even a shift to whole foods albeit in an imperfect way uh, tends to help shift that eating culture towards a generally higher priority for food and nutrition and if you come from the Mediterranean countries um, healthy eating is is number one, you know, how many Italian mamas would say, well, you know, what did you have for lunch today as the topic of conversation? It <laughs> um, doesn't, doesn't happen in, in popular culture here, but it's starting to. Yes. You know, people take photos of what they've had. I do that ad nauseum whenever I travel. Um, and that's, that's cool. That's fun. That's great. And, uh, you know, food is not just a commodity, not just something on the side, not something that you don't think about when you're walking down the street. Mm. It's central um, not only to our survival um, but, but to who we are um, and I find it an endlessly interesting topic. Yes, I can vouch for your uh, survey being uh, very user-friendly, taking only about 10 minutes. Uh, I got a 71 and it told me that I needed to uh, get more, uh, get, get rid of some of the additional items I was adding, which yes. I think is because I wasn't complying with the two drinks a week uh, implicit requirement there. Well, I think two drinks a week is only if you're in a weight loss phase um, and the online program, um, we've managed to extend that and shifted it to one indulgence a day, so... Could actually be one every day. Sounds beautifully Catholic. <laughs> yes. Oh gosh, and that's so true too. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so much guilt associated with that as well. But um, uh, indulgence foods uh, or discretionary foods, as they're called, yes. uh, uh, are our biggest downfall. And um, uh, we've um, we've got a really great report um, called the the Diet Score Report that illustrates. Um, where all those uh, indulgence foods come from. For men, it's mostly alcohol. For women, it's mostly confectionery chocolates. Um, but alcohol is definitely um, one that we overconsume. Um, and once again, you know, if we really want to improve the quality of our diet, eating less junk food is probably the most obvious, simplest way to do it. And by that, it means cut, not cutting it out, but again, having smaller portions. So. Um, some of the companies are starting to make much smaller portion sizes of mm. different chocolate bars. Some consumers feel a bit um, taken aback by that, as in that you know they feel that they're being gypped because they're having to pay the same amount. 
and that may be a fair response, but um, my perspective is smaller serving sizes are good because the more and the bigger um, the serve size, the more you will eat, mm. uh, and serve size uh, is an, a, a big factor in what drives overconsumption. And as you say, these are issues that uh, humanity has been thinking about for many millennia. Uh, I was struck looking over the CSIRO diet by the similarities to Plato's diet recommendations. Uh, He's a big fan of moderation, obviously. He says that uh, people should eat cereals, legumes, fruit, milk, honey and fish, uh, but not too much of any of those things. How about your diet? How well does your diet match the total wellbeing diet? Before I say that, who would have thought that we were plagiarising Plato? <laughs> um, but um, look, I'm I'm pretty fastidious um, with with diet. Um, you know, I always make sure I have a a reasonable breakfast. Lunch is a, a, a problematic because it means pre-planning. Um, but my evening meal is you know usually maxing out on vegetables, which is you know, has great mirth for my husband who um, who I've been trying to encourage to eat more vegetables as well. Um, you know, last night we had uh, grilled... Uh, no, no, we didn't. We had uh, whiting coated in polenta, um, fried in um, olive oil, lightly pan-fried, and a massive salad and a fruit salad for dessert. So I think we were doing pretty well on that day. And I didn't uh, have my Sauvignon Blanc because I wasn't feeling that well, but I would normally have uh, a glass or two of Sauvignon Blanc along with, with that, which is one of my personal favourites. Um, and uh, my in- indulgences, I love things like um, gelati, which is perhaps one of my favourite foods. Very nice. Uh, there's been a bit of a debate, particularly in the US literature, over this question as to whether uh, dieting is, is simply calories in and calories out or whether there's something uh, particularly uh, problematic about sugar in particular and the whole sugar is evil push. How should regular consumers who are trying to live a good life think about this? Should they still be counting calories or, or do have we moved away from that? I think ultimately calories will count. Um, you can't discount uh, calories. Um, there are different strategies for reducing calories. And, you know, decades ago, reducing fat was the strategy. You cut out fat uh, and somehow calories were reduced until there was a proliferation of low-fat foods that were higher in calories and then all of a sudden that strategy fell apart. Mm. And I think we're going to go down the same pathway with just thinking that it's all about just sugar reduction. We just cut out sugar, we can eat everything else as much as we like and then somehow everything will be fine. I don't know whether you've ever seen some of the um, you know, no sugar recipes full of um, you know, all, all kinds of other incredibly high-calorie things, mm. including coconut fat. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, it is energy-dense, and if you're trying to lose weight, that's not going to help you at all. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed by the sugar um, hysteria because it suggests that we haven't learned from our lessons of the past with fat. And if you look at the foods we overconsume, it's not just sugar. I mean, it's sure, some of the foods contain sugar, soft drinks, cakes, biscuits, but they contain other things too. And a packet of potato chips doesn't contain sugar, but it's, it, it's a contributor to 
excess kilojoules in intake, um, you know, excessive alcohol consumption doesn't contain sugar. Uh, and sure, initially you cut out sugar, you'll perturb your eating pattern, you probably will eat less, but it, as time goes on, you'll start to find things without sugar that you can eat as much as you like, mm. and your weight will go back up again. So I, I'm not a big fan of the witch hunt for one thing that will be the panacea um, to curing obesity. Um, that said, there's, there, there is some interesting research on um, the, um, the addictive nature of some foods, entirely controversial. There will be some scientists that will completely um, disagree with it and other scientists who completely support it. Um, but um, there are scales where you can assess whether you have a food-addictive-like personality. Mm. Um, and on that point, um, the CSIRO diet types asks questions about what, what characteristics you have as a person. Um, and there is one diet type um, that we call the craver. Um, and that, that type of individual finds it harder to say no and finds it harder to um, uh, avoid cues, food cues, when they're presented. So the strategy for that kind of person is not necessarily to have a little bit of something because that triggers um, more consumption. Mm. It's to not have it at all. Um, if you're a different diet type, um, for example, a socializer, then um, having a, a, a more diverse um, uh, palette of foods but in more controlled amounts can work much better. Um, and again, it's craving isn't just for sugar, even though some people do say they have a sweet tooth. Uh, our, some of our research has shown that some people have a, a salty palate. Um, but um, we don't see large differences between a sweet palate and a salty palate in terms of overweight and obesity, um, suggesting that it's not just as simple as that one thing of sugar, um, driving consumption. What is interesting though is how the popular media can create incredibly compelling stories about this and how that can really sway people's behaviour. And I think it's something that we need to learn as scientists that um, you know we tend to always look at research on lots of people, hundreds of people and look at the averages but we forget about the fact that the anecdote, the N equals one, can be so much more powerful. Mm. Um, and mm. sometimes you have to, um, not so much in the scientific literature, but when you're communicating, um, sometimes the, the anecdote, the success story, can be f a far more powerful way of communicating a message than a randomised controlled trial. Uh, which is, of course, deeply disappointing to the randomisters among us. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I, I was struck by a fascinating study that the New York Times did where they went back to Biggest Loser contestants six years later and found that over half of them had roughly regained their pre-contest weight. Uh, and part of the challenge for them uh, seemed to be that as their weight dropped, their calorie needs dropped a lot. Uh, and so they had to, the only ones who'd kept the weight off were those who'd massively ramped up the exercise, which meant carving out big chunks of time in their day to, to do a lot of walking in many cases. Uh, 
So yeah, as you say, the anecdote, the anecdote was there about the, the 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 effectiveness of Biggest Loser, but the the facts long term didn't seem to bear it out. Well, I'm surprised that 50% of them were still not too bad, which is actually a pretty good statistic because mm. it's often said that people after five years will regain all the weight, and that's not necessarily true. In the US, um, there's a registry of people who have successfully lost weight for many years, and um, uh, the researchers there have studied what are their characteristics of about, you know, why have they been successful? And they have found certain things. One of them is um, persisting with physical activity. And, and part of that is because it seems to have an impact on appetite um, control. Um, and obviously gets you away from food as well. Um, the second thing is um, having a structured eating plan, you know, knowing ahead of time what you're going to do mm. and planning ahead. Um, because often people who've been very, very overweight will often have some degree of predisposition. Um, and whether that predisposition is genetic or not, um, it's, it can be acquired, it could be epigenetic. Um, but, you know, that drive is there and it can be very, very strong. Uh, and so they do have to spend a lot, of, uh, a lot more of their cognitive effort um, keeping things in control. And by having... Uh, and knowing what you're going to do means you don't have to always think and make a choice. Um, and that's part of the rationale for the kind of structure that we put into our eating pattern in that if you plan ahead, if you know what you're going to eat, at least conceptually as well as actually sometimes, um, you don't have to have that constant battle and struggle, will I, won't I? Um, and so that structure is really important. Um, the other thing that makes a difference is is having life circumstances that are on your side. Um, sometimes, you know, things happen to people that can be, uh, that can really upset the apple cart and they are the triggers that tend to um, result in rebound um, and learning how to deal with those kinds of setbacks in life mm. and being resilient is, is a really important characteristic that some researchers are looking at now. What about for, I mean, you were talking before about uh, more addictive personalities needing to ha not not being able to have little bits of things. Uh, are there particular rules you favour? I'm, I'm thinking reputedly the Queen's dieting advice is don't eat pud. Uh, <laughs> other people talk about skipping alcohol except on weekends. Others talk about the importance of uh, uh, not eating the bread roll. Um, one strategy I've heard has it that when you feel full, you should accidentally spill your uh, glass onto your plate and so the rest of the food is spoiled so you're not tempted to pick at it. Uh, do you have uh, other sort of strategies that, uh, that, that appeal to you for, for people who are in that more addictive uh, mould? Um, look, I... I think it's helpful for people to devise their own strategies to some extent because they know themselves. The important thing is to have some rules um, and um, and you need to work out what, what works. But obviously an eating plan that is a healthy eating plan and following that and certainly tracking, a lot of people say tracking, um, is a good way to go. And you know, in the old days when we were doing research in our clinical um, unit, um, we didn't have the apps that we do today. Um, and you know, things like MyFitnessPal and all of those kinds of things mm. make it really easy. Um, so that kind of mindfulness is really important. Um, but um, also things like not eating after 8 p.m. at night um, is a good one because there's some good sound scientific 
evidence why eating late at night um, is um, going to impact on uh, poorly on your appetite and on your metabolism. And so understanding the fact that um, a kind of a rhythm to your eating pattern is important because there are biological rhythms that we have as well. Um, and eating at night time is a particularly bad time to eat. The other, of course, is making sure that people have enough sleep because inadequate sleep also impacts on appetite and you wake up often hungrier, if not when you get up at, at some time later during the day. Um, probably for the alcohol lovers amongst us, I'd say never have somebody top up your glass um, and try to alternate alcoholic drinks with soda water or a low-calorie drink or just water. You spoke about not eating after eight, which sort of made me think of the uh, the issue around fasting. Uh, there's some uh, some material I've been reading recently about the value of uh, just extending the period between dinner and breakfast and uh, and pushing that out from eight hours to 10, 12, you know, some people push it as high as 16, having a 16-hour period in the day when they don't eat. Um, what, do you, what do you think about that? Do you, do you see much scientific backing for the idea that you should have uh, a big gap during the day in which you, you give your digestive system a rest? Uh, certainly we've done some work in the fasting area as well and it's a really interesting area and the number of publications in the fasting space are going up astronomically yeah exactly Uh, and look and there is very good evidence Uh, in some ways I, I, I would bet that part of the value is that abstinent element Um, and uh, the fact that you're not having food um, because for some people, particularly that addictive um, personality type, um, which is probably lots of people, um, the more you eat, the more you want to eat. Uh, And so by having the rule you're not eating for this amount of time um, uh, can certainly help um, to reset um, your appetite control mechanisms. Um, What we don't know about the fasting area is for whom does it work well Mm. and for whom doesn't it work well and it's interesting you mentioned um you know the fact that you you don't have a lot to eat for a certain period of time and that might be a good thing if you're a craver but what about the day that you can eat as much as you like and so some people um will cope with that and won't feel like eating that much and will just eat maybe a little bit more but not that much more But then there's the other type that will actually go overboard and completely undo um, what benefit they may have achieved. Now, on average... This is the sort of five and two approach. Yes, that's right. On average, that doesn't happen. Hmm. But the average isn't the individual. Yes. And so what we're really interested in is for whom does it work well Mm. and for whom doesn't it work well? Because ultimately, we need to get to a point where, you know, there are a lot of different really good ways to lose weight. The total well-being diet is a good, healthy way to lose weight. We also have our Impromai program, which is a meal replacement program, and the Flexi program, which is a, a, a modified fasting program. All of those have been tested. They're all nutritionally balanced. They work well. But the question is, who do they work well for? Mm. And they're, I think, more interesting questions. And that's where I think the science is going now too. It's not so much just looking at the average, but looking at the diversity of response and trying to understand why that 
diversity is there and what are the reasons for that diversity. Not just only for curiosity, but for the purpose that you can then devise a personalised strategy for an individual. So personalising is really where things are moving right now. Mm. Um, and to some extent, even on, a, on the, at the level of the genetic makeup um, and the polymorphisms you might have that relate to appetite regulation, that relate to your propensity for obesity, um, that relate to whether you're a bitter taster, whether you hate coriander, whether you're caffeine sensitive. All of those things are really fascinating aspects that we can learn about ourselves through mm. some of these modern technologies. And uh, jumping on the five, five and two, uh, it's I have heard people say one of the things you can do during the five-day period is if there's foods you crave that you're not allowed to eat during that uh, more calorie-restricted period, you can write them down and then make sure that you eat them on the two days. Um, but I suppose that all turns on the extent to which your two days turn into a crazy eating binge compared to a sort of moderate increase in intake over that period. Yeah, I think it, it may work for some, um, but it might upset the apple cart mm. for others. Um, there's some interesting distraction strategies in, in the literature. So, for example, spraying um, certain scents can help to reduce that craving um, and that distraction of doing that. Um, so a lavender spray, for example, um, can help with just if you have that sensation as a distraction and it's also a sensory distraction and that mm. can help to allay Pepper some spray, of that. for example, would distract the appetite for a Absolutely. while. Absolutely. <laughs> Interesting thought, but perhaps a little over the top. Uh, what about longer fasts? Uh, do, you, do you have a view on these, uh, these multi-day fasts that some people advocate? Um, look, I think if we look at what happens physiologically, um, the longer you fast... Um, the more, the, obviously you're not having protein, you start to use your own protein reserves, you lose mm. muscle mass. And we're really learning that muscle mass is critically important for health and well-being, and particularly as you get older. It's a hallmark of um, uh, health and a hallmark uh, if, if, your, if your muscle mass is low of mm. mortality. So people with the lowest muscle mass tend to have <laughs> earlier deaths. Now, you might say it's because it signals something else. Um, and it does, in a sense. If you've got really low muscle mass, you'll fall over more easily. Um, there, it, 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 it's, it's so bad on so many levels. Um, and that's why ensuring that you're having enough protein, particularly as you get older, is important. So long fasts um, will decrease muscle mass very quickly and rapidly and even more quickly and rapidly uh, if you're over 50. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's fine if you're only doing it for a few days and that's it, um, just to get your head started um, and ready and motivated. Um, but it wouldn't necessarily be a strategy that I would recommend and particularly not for older people. Mm. Uh, what about uh, more straightforward strategies that you might use on a daily basis just to lower your uh, your appetite uh i know you've you've mentioned before that you quite like ordering some extra steamed vegetables with a with a meal as uh, presumably as a as a way of bulk bulking up a little bit um 
can shakes and soups play a, a similar sort of role? Um, soups certainly can play an important role before a meal. Um, uh, obviously, a vegetable soup is a good way of slowing down your eating, um, priming your digestive system, um, and just filling you up that little bit. And similarly, vegetables with a meal will slow down your eating. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's very depressing having a really tiny amount of food, having a lot of vegetables, you know, can make your meal more interesting, but also will slow um, that meal down. Um, the issue of shakes, you're talking about meal replacements now, I'm assuming, mm, mm. Um, are, are, are really intriguing because why they seem to work really well for some people um, is uh, a number of things. First of all, you don't have to think about what you're doing. That's what I'm having. That's it. I'm not having anything else, black, white. That works well. The second thing about it is that it, it, it provides a kind of sensory deprivation in a good way. So um, if you're a person who craves things, the use of a meal replacement will help to, to some extent, um, help to reduce those cravings. And we have shown that people on meal replacement programs, including the one that we've um, been involved in, um, weight loss will help to reduce um, those cravings. So I think that's the other reason. The, mm. the other is that you usually have them only for two meals a day, breakfast and lunch, and you take and so a partial meal replacement and then you have a normal dinner. Um, and so breakfast and lunch are usually where we're most time poor. It's really, really convenient. And those meal replacements each contain 25% of the recommended daily intake of nutrients. So what we found in our research is that if we look at people's bloods, before and after a meal replacement, um, their vitamin status improves after mm. that meal replacement. So there are significant advantages nutritionally uh, of using them. Are they a long-term strategy? Um, you know, you might say no, we don't advocate that, but the diabetes prevention programs in the US where they've used meal replacements have shown that in, in the early stages, the people that had meal replacements on and off at different times over a 10-year period were the ones that were most successful in keeping weight off. Mm. So they can be a useful strategy. The question is, does it have to be a shake or can it be just a pre-prepared meal that's portion controlled? And again, our research has shown that there's no real difference um, if the calories are the same uh, with a, a portion controlled meal and, and having a shake. Uh, the shake tends to be cheaper and more convenient, but a pre-prepared meal tends to work um, really well as well. Mm, mm. I'm interested too in food myths and uh, reading one piece recently that was talking about uh, three common food myths. Um, this is a, a New York Times piece again, uh, saying that uh, uh, salt, there's this perception that uh, salt is a, is a problem for the broad population. It was arguing that while it, uh, excessive salt can be an issue, average consumption is, is about three milligrams a day, which is about right. Um, talking about the craze in the US now for gluten-free, uh, with 1% uh, of the population being gluten intolerant and 20% of the population eating gluten-free. Um, and this notion, thirdly, that uh, the link between meat and cancer 
uh, is large in magnitude, and, and the author was arguing that, yes, the, the sign goes the, goes the way that you'd expect, that more meat does increase cancer risk, but the magnitude of the impact is so tiny as to not be worth worrying about in the scheme of things. Um, I'm curious as to what you think about those myths and whether there's other food myths that you come across. Okay, so let me get started on the gluten-free and gosh I've seen so many funny videos and we've got a little gluten-free naughty book at um, one of our <laughs> one of our offices um, uh, we've done some work on food avoidance and it's not just gluten it's also dairy free and various others so there's a significant proportion of the population that avoid these things um, although the research is still in development it's really unclear why people have those gastrointestinal symptoms that they do um, but it's um, it's it's real and uh, but whether um, gluten is the offending component is really hard to say because when you avoid gluten you're avoiding a whole lot of other things as well mm. um, interestingly um, you know the typical nutritionist in me will say well look you know those people that avoid gluten they're cutting out a food group but therefore they've got unhealthier diets in fact our research shows from our diet school survey um, those people that were avoiders of something tended to have overall healthier diets so that sounds mm -hmm. counterintuitive but then when you think about it Food avoiders are very mindful of what they're eating and therefore they tend to have a lot less junk food. Um, and so that's where, again, you might say, oh, you know, it's not a good thing. But in fact, um, being a little bit more conscious of what you're eating, um, even though you're avoiding something that, you know, may or may not be the offending um, product, um, seems to have a better impact on your overall diet. And so again, it's a part of the cultural shift that we're seeing mm. that um, there's an acceptance in, um, in restaurants now and, and hotels and pubs and clubs that people have diverse things that they don't eat and they now cater willingly for them, whereas maybe a decade or more ago um, they were considered... Um, perhaps more of a, 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 a undesirable um, and so you know we're just seeing that spectrum um, a little bit more. On the issue of, of, of red meat and colorectal cancer I mean that's been a vexed one as well and yes there's a small slight increase uh, in colorectal cancer from processed meat consumption. Um, fresh red meat um, generally the evidence is really not there um, and we're not quite sure why it is for processed meat but you know perhaps it's the nitrates it's hard to know um, but it's the difference between relative risk and absolute risk the relative risk is about a 20% increase um, but for the average individual it's really a very very tiny impact um, again um, if you think about all of the foods that impact on health and you put them together in an eating pattern, there are a lot of things that we know that contribute to um, protect, that are protective foods uh, and foods that are less so. Again, it's the total dietary pattern. So there are other foods like fish consumption, dairy consumption that are associated with lower uh, colorectal cancer risks, for example. So again, the total dietary pattern is more important than one particular food. Um, if we look at meat consumption in Australia, on average, we're eating about the recommended amounts. Um, we're often um, 
uh, assumed to be eating huge quantities. Um, if we had to reduce anything, it would be the amount of processed meats. Mm. But in terms of the amount of fresh meat, it's probably not too far off the mark from the national um, dietary guidelines at the moment. What about uh, healthy eating for kids? Are there ways in which you think we can do, do a better job of talking with our kids about how to eat well? Um, look, I, I, I don't purport to be an expert on everything and um, very little of my research has been around um, eating habits for children, although you know, I'm very familiar with the literature and some of my uh, colleagues uh, abs- ha- have children, um, dietitians in the team and uh, are absolutely passionate about this area. Um, I, I think the important thing with kids is not to have a lot of food in the house that is tempting and to have rules around eating not necessarily draconian rules but you know sensible rules about sitting down when you're eating um, you know rules around when you have um, discretionary foods you don't have to avoid them altogether but you know there's a time and place etc um, and um, I think the other thing is that um, learning to like things, it requires habituation. Mm. And we know that in children, particularly with vegetable liking, uh, it changes a lot over the first few years. Um, But um, increasing uh, exposure is really important. So even if they eat a little bit of a vegetable they don't like, but do it on a regular basis, eventually they'll grow to like it. Um, someone was telling me the other day that they hated Brussels sprouts as a kid and now they love it. Um, so there's always a, a light at the end of the tunnel. But so you know, nibble your vegetables rather than eat all your vegetables there. Well, I think with kids, don't force, mm. um, but just try and encourage um, small amounts of things they may not like. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that way, you know, praise them for doing those things, um, but never use food generally as a reward. That's probably not a good idea. Manny, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Ah, gosh. Um, I think I struggled a lot in, in my teenage years. It wasn't a really happy time. And so I think I would um, uh, say, um, uh, you know, don't don't worry. Um, it. You know, things are going to be great and uh, you wouldn't believe what's going to happen to you in the future. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, What's something I used to believe? Um, Look, I probably as a very early stage nutritionist, I was a fat phobic myself and, um, you know, clearly uh, I think um, food and nutrition is far more complex than that. but, um, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I probably should th- reflect on that a little bit more. When are you most happy? I'm most happy when I'm um, eating at a table or when I'm preparing food. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, to stay mentally healthy, I think, um, look, my family is really an important part of my life and being with them and sharing food with them is really important and my grandchildren now too. Um, physical I think is always a challenge for all of us that work in jobs that are often sedentary um, and so I try to do what I can but um, I try to do more purposeful activity. I have you know, done the, the 
the gym thing but now I think well gosh I could be doing housework and cleaning the windows and expending energy and, and doing something really productive at the same time why don't I do that instead and that's <laughs> what I, that's what I do uh, I was going to ask you about guilty pleasures you've already given us uh, two in the uh, Sauvignon Blanc and the gelati mm-hmm. uh, anything else um, no I think that covers it pretty well um, yeah roasted almond gelato chibo excellent product <laughs> but is you what is your ethnic background by the way you, uh, you, uh, um, my, my background's italian so i was born in italy in, Tus- in tuscany actually okay. yeah very very nice place to go and in fact we go there probably every year or two and and go back to where i was born and uh it's, it's a really uh, it's, it's a wonderful experience to be in the country of your birth and you you yes. don't ever really fully appreciate the fact that even though you've grown up somewhere um, where you were born has very very deep um, Mm. significance Mm. Um, and so much of the culture and food connection uh, is still there and and I love that I love the fact that um, you know they place so much importance on on food um, and the taste of food and growing food and where it comes from and talking about it and um, and so you know I can do that almost as a guilty pleasure really and to your roasted almond gelato there is one of my favorite spots to go in Rome is a little gelateria uh, just uh, about a block away from the Parthenon which has the most extraordinary array of uh, gelato flavors I'm sure I've been there but I can't remember its name (laughs) (laughs) and finally which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life which personal experiences? Person or experience? Um, gosh. Uh, look, I think, I mean, working at CSIRO has been an incredible experience for me in that, um, you know, we get money from the taxpayer to do research that's going to make a difference for people and... I don't ever forget that. I think it's really great to love science, but loving it just for the sake of science is a bit self-indulgent. I kind of really like the fact that CSIRO is really about using that science to make a difference um, and, um, and for that public benefit. And that economic benefit is also a public benefit. And Mm. so um, I think the role of the organisation in that arena is critically important and and helping Australia um, to grow and to be successful as a country um, is really, really important. So, you know, I think that um, um, the people that I've worked with in CSIRO, I think have got uh, that strong sense of the ethics of what we're doing and the importance of what we're doing. Um, And as an organisation, I'm really very proud to have been um, um, with the organisation for so long um, and the opportunities that it's given me. Thank you very much for being a guest on the Good Life podcast today. It's been fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.